Let me ask you now to open up to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I hope today is uh, an exciting day for us. Um, This is the first time that we are setting apart the first Sunday of the month for the Lord's Supper. And and truly is a full meal and not just uh, the the Lord's snack. As we saw just a month ago, the Lord's Supper in Scripture was not simply eating the consecrated bread and the consecrated cup. That was a huge part of it. But the Lord's Supper in Scripture was a full fellowship meal. It was a meal shared by Christians to celebrate their union in Christ, to remember together what Christ had done for them, and to look forward to the great wedding feast that is to come. The joy of the kingdom of Christ is pictured with this picture of a great wedding feast. And when churches celebrate the Lord's Supper, they are showing that the kingdom of Christ has already come and has already begun, and our Lord's Suppers here are to be a foretaste of the joys of heaven. And so this morning, I want to continue to unpack why the Lord's Supper is so important, uh, why Christ commanded us to keep it, and what it's really all about. And I want us to read beginning in verse 17. So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning in verse 17, we'll read through verse 22. And let me just remind you that this is the very Word of God that we are reading. So beginning in verse 17... But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Well, last time when we looked at this passage, we saw two very sobering truths. We saw first that there is a way to take the Lord's Supper that does more harm than good. Paul said that when the Corinthian Christians were coming together, it was not for the better, but for the worse. And he also said that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in such a way that was, that was so off base that it was not properly the Lord's Supper at all. Uh, this church could not rightly say that they were taking the Lord's Supper, not when they were doing the things that they were doing. So what were they doing that was so terrible? Well, some were going ahead with their own meal while others were without The wealthy in the church were eating their own food that they had brought from home. They were drinking their own drink, drinking so much that some were apparently even getting drunk. 
And meanwhile, there were other brothers or sisters in Christ, in the church, who were going hungry. The factions that so characterized this church meant that one group was going ahead and eating and the others were being neglected. And how seriously did Paul take this? Look at the words he uses. He asks, Do you despise the church of God? Paul says that when you treat your brother or sister in Christ in this way, you are despising the church. Refusing to share what you have, to be considerate, to wait for your brother and care for him, is despising the very people for whom Christ died, the bride. Paul said that the poor in this church were being humiliated. Now, note that the Lord's Supper, this fellowship meal, was never mainly about sustenance. It was about sharing the Lord's meal together. Uh, Paul says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, if you're so hungry and you're so thirsty that you can't wait for your brothers and you can't share what you have, why are you not eating at home? The fellowship meal is not a time for gorging yourself. It is a time for mutual celebration and mutual remembrance of Christ. Now, isn't it interesting that of all the ways Christ could have given us to celebrate and remember His death and resurrection, He chose only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. How strange to remember the greatest act that ever occurred in human history, the death of Christ for sinners on the cross, with a meal. Why is this the way Christ has chosen? For us to remember and celebrate together His crucifixion. That's the question I want to answer for us this morning. Why this way? Why remember Christ with this ordinance? Of all the other things Christ could have commanded, why did He command this? But when we think about it, it really isn't all that surprising. I want you to think back with me to the beginning of history. When Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And what do we see God doing there? God gives to Adam and Eve His food to eat in His presence. Remember, this is God's garden he, he walks in this garden. This, this is not Adam's garden. It's God's garden. And God places the man in the garden as a home for Adam and Eve. And they are to live in the very presence of God. Adam is to tend the garden, serve God by keeping the garden. But he and Eve are to dine at God's table. They are to eat from God's garden in His very presence. In a very real sense, the garden was the first temple of God on earth. Um, It is no accident that when God gives the instructions for how to build His tabernacle, His tent, and then later, how to build His temple, He teaches that these structures were to be crafted and decorated with garden imagery. 
Uh, The tabernacle and the temple, if you could have seen inside, you would have seen crafted all along the walls and in the decorations these images of, of a garden. That's because the tabernacle and the temple looked back to that first place where human beings lived in the very presence of God. And in the garden, Adam and Eve ate from God's table. The bounty of the garden was theirs to enjoy. It was a gift to them from God as they communed with Him. So that's how this whole story begins. Human beings living in the presence of God, communing with Him, enjoying His bounty. Now what happened? Adam and Eve ate what they were not supposed to eat, the one and only fruit that was not given to them. And because of this, they were shut off from the garden. They were shut off from God Himself. God's hospitality had ended and they were removed from His garden. And now Adam would have to work hard for his food. God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, fast forward with me a little bit into the days of Israel. God chooses a people for Himself. He makes them a nation. And He chooses to dwell with them. In the wilderness, the people of God are all living in tents. So how does God come and live with His people? Well, in the very center of the camp, He commands that they build Him a tent. And His tent, right in the center of all their tents, was called the tabernacle. And God's home was to be right in the center of all the other homes of the Israelites. Now, because of man's sin, and because of God's holiness... People could not simply go in and out of his tent. They could not just come into God's home and have fellowship with him and come into his special presence. No sin had gotten in the way. But through sacrifices, the priests representing God's people were able to come into the holy place. Not the most holy place, not the holy of holies, but the room that was on the other side of the veil. Um, Only the high priest could go in the most holy place and then only once a year and then only with blood and even then he wasn't allowed to look upon the ark. But in front of that room there was the holy place and this was the living room of God's tent. Why do I say that? Well, because it had furniture in it. There was a table in this room. There was a lampstand in this room. And on the table there was the bread of the presence. Every day, fresh bread was set out in God's house. And every day, the priests representing God's people would come into God's house and they were allowed to eat of this bread at God's table in His house. This was yet a picture again of communing with God and eating in his house. This was a picture of table fellowship with God. But because man's sin still stood in the way, there was still the veil that separated God from the priests, even as they ate in God's house. Now, this picture continued with the temple. 
uh, God's people came into the promised land and they're no longer living in tents. They begin building real houses for themselves and living in real structures. And so God called Solomon to build him a solid structure, a temple. And God dwelt with his people as he had before. He has his house in Jerusalem. And every day the table is set in the, in the holy place and the bread of the presence is there. And the priests representing his people come into his house and they have table fellowship with God, eating the bread of the presence in the temple. And this happened in the second temple as well as in the first. So then we come to the New Testament. And God comes to dwell with his people in a whole new way. He comes to our house, in a sense. God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John tells us the Word became flesh, and literally the word he uses is he tabernacled among us. God came in the flesh, born under the law, and He had fellowship with sinful men. And now, instead of people going to God's house to have table fellowship with Him, what do we see Jesus doing? He, God Himself, begins going to people's houses and having fellowship with them at their tables. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you hear the accusation. Jesus is a drunkard. Jesus is a glutton. A drunkard is someone who drinks too much. A glutton is someone who eats too much. They were accusing Jesus of these things, not because he actually was a drunkard. And not because he actually was a glutton, but because he was spending a great deal of time in people's homes, having table fellowship with them. He believed in long meals. Tim Chester says he did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. How often in the Gospels do we find Jesus eating with people? Let me give you just the Gospel of Luke. Luke 5, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners at the house of Levi, also called Matthew. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. Luke 9, Jesus is the host of the meal. He feeds the 5,000 on the hillside. Luke 10, Jesus is eating in the home of Mary and Martha. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law while at a meal. Luke 14, Jesus urges people to invite the poor and the needy to their dinner tables while he himself is at a meal. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to a meal at Zacchaeus' house. Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus Christ has a meal with two followers of his from Emmaus. Later in Luke 24, he eats a breakfast of fish with his disciples. Robert Karras says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is always either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And then we skipped one. There was that special fellowship meal. It was the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before his death. And it was at that meal of table fellowship that Christ broke the bread and poured the cup. It was there that he instituted these elements as pictures of the gospel and presented what he was about to do. How can the veil be taken away? 
How can we have real communion with God like it was in the garden? Only through the body and the blood of Christ. Friends, this is why Jesus gave this ordinance to the church. In the Lord's Supper, we are not simply drawing near to one another. We are commanded to come to God's table. We are commanded to come to Christ's table. It is the Lord's Supper. Christ is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit as we fellowship together. This church, when we gather together, becomes a temple to God. It's not our house. This is God's house. This table isn't our table. This is the Lord's table. And we come and we eat and we have table fellowship with God at His table. The veil has been removed. He is here with us. He is at the head of the table. He is the host of the meal. The Lord's Supper is to be a time of joyful remembrance and celebration as we fellowship together and fellowship with God in His very presence. And of course, of course, it is a foretaste and a picture of the day when we will do this with even greater power and fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. So why this ordinance as opposed to others? Because this is a picture of what Christ has done. He has restored our fellowship with God. And what shows that better than eating at a table? Now, three implications. Three implications. Number one, since the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal centered around the gospel, looking forward to heaven, we should reject isolationist observances. We should reject isolationist observances. And what I mean by that is this. We should not typically celebrate the Lord's Supper as an individualistic kind of thing. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Christ's church. It is His table in His house. And this isn't the house, but us coming together as a church makes this the house. And this becomes His table. The Lord's Supper celebrates our mutual unity with Christ and our mutual fellowship with Christ. And in the Bible, we never see individuals taking the Lord's Supper by themselves or even families taking the Lord's Supper by themselves in their homes. Um, I have good friends whose churches sometimes do things like this. During, during the Lord's Supper part of the service, people will come up at different times and individuals will take the Lord's Supper by themselves or families will take the Lord's Supper by themselves. And it's, it's a very personal, me and God kind of experience. But this isn't what we see taught in the Scriptures. The whole point of the Lord's Supper is to celebrate our mutual union with Christ as we dine with Him together. This is why Paul was saying to the Corinthian Christians, Wait on one another. Wait. Let this be something that you do together. The Lord's Supper is a supper to be shared together with other Christians because of what Christ has done for us. Now, what about shut-ins? What about Christians who cannot come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us as brothers and sisters in Christ? Or as what happens occasionally, 
What about someone who is dying on a hospital bed and requests that the Lord's Supper be brought to them? A couple of things. Number one, we need to reject all Roman Catholic notions of the Supper that make the bread and the cup to have some sort of mystical, magical power. Um, Anyone that wants to take the Lord's Supper before they die because they think it's somehow like a magic pill or something that's going to make them right with God, they are gravely mistaken. There is only one way of peace with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we will talk about in a later sermon, there is nothing magical about taking the bread or the cup. But then second, I am not against taking the bread or the cup to to folks who are shut in or near death and who desire to remember the great work that Christ has done for them in this way. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship. And when Christians want to worship, that's a good thing. But I will say this. If I or others were to take the Lord's Supper to someone who's shut in in their home or to a hospital room, we're going to take it together. We're going to take it together as fellow Christians. And even though the whole church might not be there, we're going to make it as corporate as we can because it is meant to be something that we take together as mutual children of God, experiencing the presence of God. And we'll have a little worship service right there together. Um, In other words, we should never take the Lord's Supper to be a me and God only kind of thing. It is a corporate thing. It is we all take our seats at the table with Christ at the head and we enjoy table fellowship with Him. We enjoy communion with Him. Now the second implication I want to make of all this is that we must fence the table. We must fence the table. Uh, Since the Lord's Supper is a picture of our union in Christ and how it is His death that brings us together, this is not an ordinance for unbelievers. Uh, We can't allow unbelievers to come and take a seat at the table and to proclaim with the rest of us our oneness and unity in Christ. No, for that unbeliever, that would be a lie. Now, certainly that doesn't mean unbelievers don't get to eat with us at the fellowship hall. It just means when it comes to the the bread and the cup, when we are proclaiming this is what we trust and this is what brings us together, that is for believers only. But when I speak of fencing the table, um, there's something even more important I need to say. Because it seems that the issue in 1 Corinthians 11 is not an issue of unbelievers taking the Lord's Supper, It's the issue of Christians taking the Lord's Supper while living in obvious and outward sin. This is why one of the ways that churches have practiced church discipline throughout the history of the church is by denying the bread and the cup to people who are living in obvious and blatant sin and have not repented. Um, By a church saying to a church member, uh, we're not going to allow you to take the bread and the cup. They're saying, dear friend, wake up. There is a sin in your life that we all see that we are calling you to repent of. And until you repent of it, we can't be sure that you're a believer. And so we're asking you, we're, we're keeping you from the Lord's table in order to grab your attention and to say you need to repent of this sin in your life. 
Throughout Christian history, there have often been times when pastors and churches would not allow a certain Christian to come to the Lord's table and to take the Lord's Supper with the rest of the church because they were trying to love that person and to help them see how serious the sin they were in. I want to give you one example. This, is, um, this, this has happened thousands of times, but I love this story. I think there's a lot we can learn from it. So I'm going to give you probably the most famous example of a professing Christian who was told, you can't take the Lord's Supper until you repent. So I want you to go with me to the late 300s. So the late 300s. And in Milan, Italy, uh, there is a very popular governor named Ambrose. And it's time for the election of the new head pastor, uh, the bishop of Milan. And so Ambrose is the governor of Milan, but now there's something religious happening. They're getting ready to elect uh, a new head pastor for the city of Milan. And the governor, Ambrose, decides to attend the meeting where they're going to elect this new bishop because there's a great division in the city. There are some Orthodox Christians in the city who hold to true biblical Christianity, and there are some Arians in the, in the city who deny that Jesus is God. And so there's a real sense of tension. Is the next pastor of Milan going to be a Christian or an Arian? Is he going to be Orthodox and believe that Jesus is God, or is he not? And these two rival sides are are pitted against each other, and Ambrose goes because he's in charge of the police, and he's there to make sure a fight doesn't break out. Well, someone saw Ambrose in the room, and because he was so loved by the people of Milan, when it came time to take nominations for the position of bishop, someone called out his name. And more and more people started saying, yeah, yeah, Ambrose for bishop. Let's, let's have Ambrose. Um, this was crazy because Ambrose had not even been baptized yet. Uh, he had become a Christian, but he had no pastoral training. He, his whole life, had been a man of politics. He was the governor. He knew nothing of, of biblical theology. But guess who got elected bishop of Milan? And how did Ambrose respond? When they elected him to be the pastor for the city, he ran away. He went to a friend's house where he hid for several days. Uh, The emperor of his time, and at this time the emperor of Rome, uh, this emperor called himself a Christian, he wrote a letter saying how good it was for qualified men in public office to leave their public offices and to go lead the church. Uh, Emperor Gratian wrote this letter basically urging Ambrose to take this position of bishop. And when Ambrose's friend read it to him, he showed it to Ambrose, hoping that he would come out of his hiding, resign as governor, and take this position of bishop. But Ambrose still refused. And so finally, the friend whose house he was hiding in turned him in, and a gang of people showed up at the house, and they forcibly removed Ambrose from the house and appointed him, indeed ordained him, as head pastor against his will. When Ambrose saw all this happen, he finally relented and he took his position as head pastor of the church there in Milan. Now, fast forward with me just a little bit to the year 390. There's a new emperor and his name is Theodosius. And something has happened 
in the city of Thessalonica. You remember Thessalonica? We have the letters to the Thessalonians. Um, Chariot racing. Chariot racing was absolutely huge in the Roman Empire. NFL season starts this week. We're going to see people everywhere. NFL, NFL. Compared to how the Romans cared about chariot racing, our NFL fans seem seem not that excited. Uh, chariot racing was absolutely huge. Entire cities had their glory of their city connected to their chariot racer. And the whole city would come out for the races. And it was huge. Well, uh, maybe some of you have seen the movie Ben-Hur and the famous chariot race scene. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, in Thessalonica, their most popular charioteer was arrested and put in prison. He was a homosexual. And he was charged with rape. But the people didn't care about that. There was a race coming up, and he was their city's hero. And so the people of Thessalonica um, basically joined together into a mob. They raided the prison, they set him free, and then they went and they killed the governor of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a big and important city, and Emperor Theodosius couldn't just let this go unpunished. He can't have cities being controlled by mobs. And so here is how Emperor Theodosius responded. He announced to the city of Thessalonica that another chariot race was going to be held. And when the stands were filled with people, he had the doors locked, and he sent in his soldiers, and he killed every single person in the arena. 7,000 innocent people were killed uh, in the arena that day. We're told that after the emperor had sent that order, he changed his mind and sent a second order, but the second order reached Thessalonica too late. The deed had already been done. Ambrose, over in Milan, was absolutely horrified. And he wrote a letter to the emperor, this Christian emperor. Theodosius claimed to be a Christian. He wrote a letter to this Christian emperor calling him to repent. Ambrose wrote, I exhort, I beg, I entreat, I admonish you, because it is grief to me that the perishing of so many innocent people is no grief to you. He said, I call on you to repent. And yet there was no sign whatsoever of repentance from the emperor. Guess what happened next? Emperor Theodosius had business to do in Milan. He comes to Milan and he's there on a Sunday. And because he's a Christian, he comes to church in Milan. Ambrose is leading the church service. And when it came time for the Lord's Supper, the emperor like the other Christians, was ready to receive the bread and the cup. And Pastor Ambrose, knowing that it could cost him his life, refused to allow the emperor to take the Lord's Supper. He told the emperor that until he repented of taking the lives of 7,000 people, he would not give him the bread or the cup. Theodosius claimed that he had repented. Ambrose told him, no, you show no evidence of it. Your repentance must be genuine. It must be public, just like the sin that you committed. He told the emperor he had to take off his royal garments and he had to wear a simple shroud. He told the emperor he had to get on his knees in front of other people and confess his sins and cry to God for mercy. And only then would he give him the Lord's Supper. 
Well, here's the amazing thing. God did an incredible work in Theodosia's life because of this. Um, He did repent publicly. He wore the common shroud instead of his royal garments for eight months before Ambrose let him take the Lord's Supper. He publicly lowered himself before the people and confessed his sins and cried to God for mercy. And after eight months, he was received back into Christian fellowship with friendship and joy. Ambrose became one of the emperor's dearest friends. And later the emperor would say that he knew no bishop worthy of the name except for Ambrose. And in fact, when this emperor died, it was Ambrose who he asked to be by his bedside as he died. This is what fencing the table means. It means that there are moments, and thankfully we've never had one here, and I hope we don't, but we need to talk about it. There are moments when a person can come under church discipline, where the church is calling that person to repent, and that person is still refusing, when a church will fence the table and say, well, then you can't come and join us at the Lord's table, because you're living as an unbeliever, and you may yet prove to be one. It's a call to repent. Uh, Think back about our passage. In Corinth, in this church, there were professing Christians participating in the Lord's Supper with one another while being divided against one another in their hearts. Um, They professed their oneness and their unity in Christ as they took the bread and the cup, and yet the moment they finished with the bread and the cup, they were treating each other with cruelty, refusing to show love, refusing to meet each other's needs. When Paul says later in this passage that Christians are to examine themselves before they take the Lord's Supper, this is what he's talking about. When he talks about taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, this is what he's talking about. We are to examine our hearts to make sure that there is no hostility or division between us in this room. Have you been unkind to any person in this room? Are we neglecting or sinning against our brothers and sisters? Jesus said, when you come to bring your gift to the altar, first go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And in the documents of the early church, we see that Christians were told to examine themselves before the supper and to confess to one another any sins that were causing them to be divided before they took the Lord's Supper. As a united family... The church is to take the Lord's Supper. And who's to be kept from it? Only those Christians who refuse to repent of obvious and blatant sin. What is a lesson for us? We ought to be passionate about maintaining our unity with one another. We ought to be confessing our sins to one another. And we ought never to proclaim unity around the Lord's table together while being divided against one another in our hearts. And so this is what we're to consider and examine before we come to the Lord's table. Well, finally, a third implication, and it's simply this. We should esteem this ordinance very highly. 
Um, Next time we preach on the Lord's Supper, we'll talk about how we should esteem this ordinance very highly because we are remembering the most important event in the history of the world. We're remembering Christ's sacrifice for our sins. We're remembering how He bore the wrath of God for our sakes. For that reason alone, the Lord's Supper should be so precious to us. But this Lord's Supper should also be precious to us because as we eat and drink, we really are experiencing real communion and fellowship with one another and with God. And it should be precious to us because it points us to the great wedding feast ahead and the day when we will sit at the table with Christ as the head in person and experience real communion and real fellowship with Him. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is to strengthen your faith. It is to increase your expectation about the day that is to come when you will sup with your Savior and His people in a way greater than we can do on this earth today. The supper today is a token of the glory that is ahead for you. And so we should love to take the Lord's Supper. It, It should be one of the most important events in our lives It should set our eyes on Christ, who is our hope of heaven, and it should keep us holding on to Him to the ends of our lives. And so, as we come to the table now, think about the price that Christ paid for your salvation. Think about the heaven that is ahead for you and the kingdom that you've been made a part of. Think about what it will be like on that day to see your Savior's face and to have fellowship with Him. He is with us now, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper at His table. So let us receive the Lord's Supper with joy and with gratitude and with thankfulness in our hearts. Let's pray.